If you're a fan of this podcast and want to see it continue, help support us on Patreon, where you can unlock tons of exclusive content, including, but not limited to, movie commentaries, ad-free versions of our promo specials, extended cuts, early access to new episodes, behind-the-scenes clips, first access to merchandise, blooper reels, and even a chance to vote on what we cover next on our podcaster's disassembled episodes. Just head right on over to patreon.com slash podcastersassemble. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash podcastersassemble. Link in the show notes. Podcasters, assemble. Hi, this is Paul Salt, co-host of One Good Thing podcast and film critic for ScreenMayhem.com. Hi, Chris Carroll here from the Comic Zombie Podcast. Hello, I am the Robo Gonzalez 9001. Eric Slater here from Epic Fails of History. I'm Matt in Buffalo from Upper Pylon 2, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. Hey there, this is Araj Dolachai from the Sith List Podcast on the Making Star Wars Podcast Network. This is Troidal Power from the Power Playthroughs Podcast. Hi, this is Arjuna Gonzalez from Peace Island. This is Kate from the Blah by the Hut podcast. Let's talk about Star Wars, Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. Star Wars, Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. It is a dark time for the Rebellion. Although the Death Star has been destroyed... Imperial troops have driven the rebel forces from their hidden base and pursued them across the galaxy. Evading the dreaded Imperial Starfleet, a group of freedom fighters led by Luke Skywalker has established a new secret base on the remote ice world of Hoth. The evil Lord Darth Vader, obsessed with finding young Skywalker, has dispatched thousands of remote probes into the far reaches of space. I've been asked to talk about one of my favorite films of all time. Now, not just my favorite Star Wars film, but one of my top three films ever, and that is Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, which I think is pretty close to a perfect film. I mean, the writing, the cinematography, the acting, the direction, it all comes together to make a perfect blend of everything you want in fandom. Action, drama, romance, comedy, a jaw-dropping cliffhanger, what else do you need in a movie? So, Empire Strikes Back, uh, you know, it's obviously no stretch to say this is most people's favorite, of at least of the original trilogy of Star Wars films. It's, it's I mean, it's almost perfect. Uh, it's a tremendous movie full of amazing sequences, uh, incredibly creative special effects, great characterization, daring storylines... Really good character writing and dialogue, terrific delivery of those lines, great ad-libbing, costumes, all of it is really kind of comes together in this one. So to my recollection, Empire Strikes Back was the first time I had visually seen any part of Star Wars. So it was back in the 90s, my best friend's big sister was actually watching the VHS of Empire Strikes Back. 
And I just happen to walk in on the part where Han is cutting open the tauntaun and all the guts are falling out and everything. And I just kind of froze and I was like, what's this? <laughs> so she told me about Star Wars and I stopped watching because I knew I didn't want to just like get in in the, in the middle of that. And I was aware enough that, you know, there were there were other movies. So I wanted to watch everything in its entirety. So I waited until the special editions came out. And that's when I saw them all for the first time. <laughs> but Empire Strikes Back will always have a very special spot in my heart because of that. I honestly don't remember the first time I saw Empire Strikes Back. Probably, like, episodes two and four, it was, like, a rerun on TV on some station somewhere um, sometime in the 90s. But I honestly can't remember the first time I saw it. As I think I said last episode, I had the original trilogy uh, remasters on VHS back in the day. And so I remember re-watching them probably when I was like 11, 12, 13, so yeah, late 90s, early 2000s, um, would have been the last time that I saw it. But I, I, I can't tell you anything about the first time I saw it. Which doesn't mean it wasn't a good movie or anything, it's just I have no memory of it. Now, I remember the first time hearing about Empire, I was a little lad growing up in Southern California, and I would go to this mall and for all you old folk, it was called the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which was the old film Valley Girl was filmed there. And I remember walking around on the second level, and they had a movie theater up there, and there was a line, I think, that went all the way down to the first level. I asked my brother, what in the world is this? And he said, it was Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. I really, at that time, I was so young, I didn't really know what Star Wars was. I just remembered, wow, what are these people doing waiting in line like this? And I didn't get to see Empire for about a year later. I think it was on VHS a year, year and a half later. And I loved it so much with a boombox and cassette tapes. I recorded the entire movie. I think it took me about three cassette tapes, front and back. And I recorded it and I used to listen to it at night when I went to sleep. So I would play it and I put it in the background, memorize all of it. I would visualize everything and let it play while I was dreaming. And I always wanted to dream about Star Wars. So here again, like New Hope, I don't necessarily have a memory of seeing this for the first time, but I do know that this was the first Star Wars movie I ever saw. And I watched this, oh, uh, hundreds of times probably before I saw New Hope. And I remember that very clearly because we had, now looking back on it, a homemade copy duplication of this on VHS. And I distinctly remember looking at the cover of this v VHS and thinking it was just some kind of weird artistic mm, art design cover of Star Wars. Because, and now here I'm willing to admit I spent more time than <laughs> I should have searching for this online. But it was just a store-bought blank VHS that we co uh, copied it onto, and it was the Sertron video cassette HQ T120, and it had this really neat geometric shapes on it. As a kid, I looked at it. I'm like, these roughly 
very roughly look like star destroyers because they have these blocky shapes that kind of trail off to the edges so surely this was a special tape made for star wars and i just remember popping that out all the time and just watching that on my parents vcr that popped up on the uh that opened in the top of the vhs and you put it in put it down oh it was awesome all right so up next we got the empire strikes back or as it's commonly referred to now episode five so like i was saying last time the first time i saw this i think we rented it on vhs i know we did own the laser disc at one point which is kind of sweet i wish i had hung on to that thing because it turns out that that's the best quality you can get of the original theatrical cuts of the movie and there you can't find those anymore um but then again who has a laser disc player anymore jesus <laughs> I, I know i'm dating myself here by even talking about that but yeah there's a lot to like about it and not a lot to nitpick at all but choosing individual favorite moments for this one was probably more difficult than any other one I, but um I'll, I'll give it a shot so i ended up settling on like a theme to how to talk about new hope and i said it was probably the most important movie ever but I think with Empire, it's probably the best Star Wars movie ever. Now, I might kind of argue with myself when we get to Last Jedi, but this is probably when you take away like the newness bias and all that, the recency bias over the new movie there, this one probably is the best. And I'm literally a scientist by trade. That's what I do for a living, I'm educated with it. So I, I want to put this movie kind of in terms of that. So the first movie is like a really successful first experiment you try. But you're really happy with how it worked out and it came out really well. But when you get a second chance to go and do this experiment again, you try and optimize things. You can make every aspect of the experiment work a little bit better fix all those rough edges refine a little bit make it a little bit more efficient get a little bit bigger of a signal out of your reaction maybe it wasn't as efficient as it could be before how do you fix that this time around and you really kind of drive and you know drill down into those little individual areas and see where you can improve it and here i think and really every single way other than just the shock of the newness of it Empire does better in every meaningful way of the movie. It really kicks off in high gear with uh, with exploring Hoth. Uh, you get the like totally different landscape than we've seen in the previous Star Wars movie uh, with this frozen planet. Of course, it's uh, a single biome because that's something that is pretty standard in Star Wars is that, you know, you've got the jungle planet and the desert planet and the ice planet and the swamp planet. But it's still cool to see uh, our characters having to deal with the elements. I mean, like Luke nearly dies here because of just the planet, not taken down by the dark side or anything. He's nearly taken out by just a animal that lives here, that Wampa who knocks him off. Uh, of his mount and drags him away and hangs him up to dry. I don't know why it, it hung him up to freeze. So a real quick note about the special edition version of this one. I actually think for the most part, the, the small additions they made to this one 
kind of improved it. Like they mostly just dealt with special effects things. The scene with the Wampa was a little bit um, more developed, um, a little bit creepier. Some people actually like the original version of that scene better because less is more, and I, I totally get that. But it was kind of cool seeing the Wampa, you know, the you know, actually getting to see him. My favorite supporting character. Uh... Does the giant cave bear thing count from the beginning? Hoth? I always thought that looked really awesome. And I know in like the special editions, we get a little bit of the deleted scene where you see more of it. I don't really need it because what we did see was really creepy. Like that bit where it stands up and it's got like the bloody mouth and all that. That was awesome. The animals on Hoth, uh, the Tauntauns and the Wampas, and even with like the wonky... Um, Wonka's uh, Wampas in the original version of the movie before they kind of got, you know, uh, cleaned up in some of the alternate cuts. It's just awesome. And it just gives such that iconic Star Wars thing of just, oh, yeah, you forget that there's all these crazy creatures throughout all of this. Of course, he manages to use the force to grab his lightsaber. Great moment. Uh, of course, this is something that, again, we all did this, right, trying to reach across the room. I still do this today. I'm an adult. I'm going to be a father. And I still will hold my hand up at the remote when it's on the other side of the couch and just try to use the force to pull it towards me because just maybe it'll work. Luke finally uh, is found by Han Solo. He's had his visions of Obi-Wan telling him to go to Good Dagobah, Ben! Uh, and Han Solo uh, cuts open... Uh, the Tauntaun, and shoves Luke inside, saying, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Gross. Super gross. But it sticks with you. Definitely sticks with you. The best ship is definitely the Snowspeeders. Um, I love that design and the functionality of having one pilot facing forward and one facing back lends a really cool dynamic to the Hoff battle, which, oh, it's just a brilliant set piece. Yeah, it's a really well-designed ship. And then here we get to the action and you have your ground based stuff, which is some of the most beautiful stop motion, you know, action you're ever going to see with the walkers on Hoth with all the multi-dimension of the infantry and the speeders and the walkers. Beautiful. The big takeaway I want to talk about from the, uh, the whole Hoth action scene overall here. It's really good. You get, you know, the the, the Adats. Holy smokes, y'all. This is the first time we've seen Adats. I've just realized that. I mean, obviously, I knew that before. But I've just realized that in the continuity of talking about Podcasters Assemble here, this is the first time Adats show up if you're watching the movies in release order. Oh, they're so cool. And the way they're revealed where the guy's looking through the binoculars into the haze, and then you see the feet, and then it goes up and it zooms out, and you're like, oh, my gosh. They have giant walking robots? I, I don't totally understand why they have giant walking robots when they've got spaceships but they've got giant walking robots dang and then you get the snow speeders come out and again this is a level i've played in so many video games where you've got to go out to the ad at you drop your tow cable cable out behind you it clamps on you spin a couple circles around the thing and you send it flying into the ground so good such a fun thing to do and we've done it in so many video games you know like so many other vehicles in these star wars movies it brings back nostalgia of playing Star Wars video games like Star Wars Rogue Squadron, where I believe there's like a whole level where you um, 
get to shoot the harpoon and like fly around the legs of the thing and destroy it that was always really fun once you got the hang of it as i grow up the coolest moment to me by far is luke on hoth flying around in this dinky little like nothing fighter it's barely even a fighter it's like a little you know cruiser that happens to have laser blasts on it or whatever but his his co-pilot gets killed and he still takes down the giant atat walker by firing the um the cable looping around the legs and making it trip and then he's running around on foot waxing atat walkers or at ats whatever you want to call them um using his little grappling hook thing and the lightsaber to cut open the, that that's my favorite light time moment in in uh in empire i'm a big sucker for spaceships and vehicles in these and here empire just is killing it and it just goes over the top i went back through the list of everything that's in here and it's unbelievable that they did this much work through models and all that then but just all these amazing pieces of artwork the the ship design i'm counting as artwork here that run through it you had the core ones of the millennium falcon the star destroyer and all that in the original but all they do is just keep killing it in this. You have the snow speeders, which are just neat and have that cool arrangement of the rear-facing gunner. The trans the rebel transport ships when they're leaving Hoth are just neat and you can they tell you so much from just a ship design of what the rebels are facing, what their characters are like. The ships look literally cobbled together and it's just beautiful efficient store, you know, art design driving the story and you know i overuse the word iconic through so much of this because it, it truly is but look at the adats or atats i'm going to cover all my bases and how those are pronounced here Th those walkers are just such an amazing image and for my money out there with the dual sunset is imagery of that is the rebels looking through their binoculars and seeing the walkers approaching that is kind of like a chill moment but what i was starting to say at the beginning of this section is the thing that stood out to me watching uh watching the movie this time is that the the hoth stuff is like it's like 30 minutes and it's a totally different movie than the rest of it. It's just kind of interesting. It's like this big bombastic opening action scene that then isn't totally connected with the rest of the movie. This movie is almost like, like that section is almost like, uh, uh, like star Wars fun action short film that they had to attach to the serious and kind of meditative rest of the movie which I think is kind of interesting. I don't know. I don't have a lot to say on it besides that, but I think it's kind of interesting. If Star Wars 1977 was a huge feat of technical innovation, then I think it's Empire, where you see Star Wars match its technical ambition and storytelling. Having established these characters and their universe, the second film throws them apart to the far ends of the galaxy and sets about interrogating their personalities and the dynamics between the characters. You've got uh, Han and Leia, Luke and Yoda, Darth and a handful of admirals, and we expertly cut between these three main pieces of action throughout the film. And we just see them develop in a relentless series of just completely compelling sequences. 
and maybe the most important aspect that got better between these movies is the writing. I think it's immeasurably better. And that's not to really take away from the original. Again, I want to give that a ton of credit for its simplicity. It's written as such a great, simple fantasy story, really. And here, it doesn't have to be kept super simple. And I think they did a lot of good work to expand on that simplicity. Here we start the deep dive into these characters. You know, not too much. It's still not a character study. But we're given enough enough, enough depth to kind of really enjoy these characters and see different aspects of them. And the, one of the reasons I think it's one of the most important films in Star Wars history and in the, in the entire saga is because we get introduced to some unbelievably legendary characters. We get introduced to Yoda. We get introduced to Lando. We have the Emperor's appearance for the first time in a hologram. And we get Boba Fett. Those four have become legendary characters, and Empire introduces all of them. We also hear about Jabba the Hutt and the bounty on Han's head. So our heroes end up getting off Hoth. Uh, you've got Luke and R2 in X-Wing heading off to Dagobah, and you've got uh, Han Solo, Princess Leia, Chewbacca the Wookiee, and C-3PO in the Millennium Falcon, and they're on the run because they're being chased, and the hyperdrive's not working. My favorite ship slash vehicle, I, I give it to the Millennium Falcon because it's really where a lot of the center of the action in the movie is. And we see it a lot more than in A New Hope. And everything that's good about the ship design in the original Star Wars trilogy that I think I've talked about in previous episodes from Grieveling to like the look of a used future, it's just exemplary in the Falcon. And this leads to one of my favorite Han Solo moments in probably the whole franchise is he's like under the floor in the belly of the hyperdrive trying to fix stuff, spinning around on on pipes and stuff. And he pops his head up out of the floor to have Chewbacca give him some tools. And Chewbacca, the the box of tools is right next to the, the hatch he's under. And then he goes back down and then something hits him and the box of tools falls down and you just go, ow! That might be my favorite Han Solo move, moment in the whole movie, the whole franchise. He reveals, oh, something hit us. Like asteroids now. All right, favorite ship has to be Vader's Super Star Destroyer. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved that thing. Uh, just that, that whole scene in the asteroid belt where you see... Okay, so real quick, the original movie opens with that massive star destroyer and it just fills the screen and you're like oh my god i can't believe how big this thing is then you see the death star and you're like oh my god but in empire strikes back that scene starts out with a massive star destroyer and then you see two and then three and there's like a bunch of them and then you see like there's like they there's this shadow that falls over all of them and then it pans back and you see this massive Star Destroyer that's like six times the size of those things. You're like, what is this? Wow, what an introduction. That is absolutely breathtaking of that, of seeing the traditional Star Destroyers, which you're already programmed to know are like impossibly large, being eclipsed by the shadow. Just the way it looks was awesome. I don't know. The scale of that scene is just so well done. Um, Because in space, there's not a lot of ways to really show how big something is 
and they they find ways to do it by like zooming on, on like a window and you see someone walking through it or whatever and then they you know zoom out and, uh but yeah <laughs> i didn't geek out about this stuff all day man <laughs> includes this really beautiful character driven action set pieces there's a tendency with action set pieces where once the fighting starts it could be anyone you know interchangeable but it, this isn't just anyone being chased through an asteroid field, it's Han never tell me the odds solo. The personality drives the action, and that's hard to do. Han Solo is great in the asteroid fields. You get uh, him inside of that big worm creature that lives on the asteroid, blasting Minox off the outside of the Falcon, all kinds of good stuff there. Uh, he and Leia almost kiss, but then C-3PO shows up and uh, kind of interferes before before Han and Leia can kiss. But that's not my favorite thing in the asteroid field. My favorite thing in the asteroid field is Darth Vader's got like a series of Star Destroyers that are helping him search the asteroid field. And he's got a teleconference phone where he's got all the, the, the commanding officers of the Star Destroyers on a, on, a, on a hologram teleconference. And one of them dies one of the commanding officer's ships gets hit by an asteroid right in the bridge, and you see him on the hologram, he's standing there looking at Darth Vader, and then the hologram like looks off to the side and holds his hand up, and then the transmission cuts out. That dude died. And you know what? I went on a quest to find out who he was. So this is from uh, starwars.fandom.com. Um, Vader ordered several Star Destroyers, including this Star Destroyer, the one we're speaking of, uh, the Star Dreadnought Executor and the Avenger into the unpredictable storm of asteroids to draw the Millennium Falcon and its passengers out of their hiding spot and into the hands of the Empire. This Star Destroyer's captain attended a holographic conference of 19 other battleship commanders, including Captain Lorth Nida of the Avenger, with Vader aboard the Executor. As the conference progressed, the Star Destroyer's bridge was hit by a massive hurtling asteroid, and the warship subsequently obliterated. He doesn't have a name. That Star Destroyer doesn't have a name. This is the biggest hole in the Star Wars Expanded Universe canon as far as I'm concerned. Everybody in Star Wars has a backstory. Everybody. Skippy the Jedi droid. Remember him? But this guy who gets killed during a teleconference and nobody even cares? He doesn't have a backstory? Listen, Disney, if you're listening to this, and I know you are, my name's Troy, and I would like to write the story of the Star Destroyer and its captain who died mid-teleconference. Thank you. And then that chasing, like I hinted at, through the asteroid belt is just amazing as well. It's super dynamic. It's super cool. You, it's multi-dimensional as well. It's not just two spaceships at one level. You see the Millennium Falcon diving below and getting these breathtaking images of the Star Destroyers nearly colliding with each other. My favorite music cue would be when the Millennium Falcon has hidden inside the asteroid and the Rhinox they're called, the weird bat creatures um, with the suction cups on their heads, have, you know, discovered the ship and they're walking around outside and there's all these little music cues that just sort of come in at the right moment as they're flying around and harassing them. The way that they combine just like really long and sort of tension building silences and then the jump scare, just as the thing flies by. It was like some kind of classic horror movie. I loved the pacing on it. It's another, you know, textbook awesome example of pacing in Star Wars. Then the creature work of like, come on, the asteroid worm thing? And what were they, Minox inside? Uh, who thinks up that? 
Of course, the first time we see Yoda is just precious every time because he's such a little stinker, that Yoda. Where he's like, oh, I'm stealing your food and hitting your droid with a stick. It's very good. I like Yoda. Uh, wait, I said that wrong. Let me try again. Oh, stealing your food. Am I hitting with a stick, your droid? There we go. Uh, but good old Yoda. I love his introduction because he starts out as kind of like a fun, quirky comic relief character of like, oh, this is just going to be another creature feature part of the movie. But it turns into such a wonderful twist where he goes so... It's unbelievable acting from a puppet where he turns on a dime from comedic relief and all of a sudden you see this turn where, like, literally you can see him become such more... such a, a weighty character. And again, from a puppet... And this character is so iconic. Everybody loves him. It's as silly as just his speaking mannerisms. Is It's that cultural pervasion. And then he reveals himself uh, by talking to Ben and saying he is too old. And, and Ben and Yoda have this awkward argument about whether Luke is going to get trained. Luke's just sitting there going, no, I, I, I could do it. I promise, please. I'll try really, really hard. Please. My favorite light side moment. I mean, there are a lot of important light side moments because this is the movie that introduces Yoda and Luke's training in the Dagobah system. Um, the one that stood out the most to me is after uh, Yoda has brought Luke back to his little hobbit hole uh, and he's serving dinner and all that and Luke is super impatient because he wants to meet Yoda and start his training so he can get back to fighting the Empire. And Yoda has started having his little conversation with Ghost Obi-Wan, and he's talking about how Luke isn't ready, or he's just not patient enough to start the training. And he says, This one, a long time have I watched. All his life has he looked away to the future, to the horizon. Ever his mind on where he was, hmm? what he was doing. He says that as he pokes Luke in the chest. Adventure. <laughs> Excitement. <laughs> A Jedi craves not these things. You are reckless. You know, it's a cheesy sci-fi movie, but how many of us have not properly focused on where we were and what we were doing? And thinking like 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, days into the future. And I've had to learn my lesson in that regard every once in a while, so... Yeah, that that was one of the cooler lines in that scene. Thank you for coming to my TEDx Dagobah talk. And then Dagobah, which is just kind of a character all of its own that Yoda just feels completely at home in. And it's such just a interesting environment for Luke to sit there. And you can kind of understand if again you understand his frustrations of like the character work of wanting to be with his friends or helping them but it's also it fits so perfectly that yeah i wouldn't want to sit and work out in a disgusting swamp either and it just is so fitting for the purpose and informing his frustrations around it the best quote is probably the first quote i ever saw or associated with star wars my first exposure to Star Wars was um, a trailer for the, um, tri the VHS of the original trilogy before the limited editions were due to come out in 1997, um, and it was before my VHS of Power Rangers, the movie. 
And the line that stuck with me, the first thing I ever saw of Star Wars that really stayed with me, was, I'm not afraid, you will be. Wonderfully foreboding line, as well as um, puncturing Luke's bravado, which is a big part of what Yoda's training is. The scene where Luke goes into the, I guess, slightly underground forest cave and fights the Phantom Darth Vader during his training with Yoda, and they have a short lightsaber duel, and then there's this big reveal where we see the decapitated Darth Vader head, and it explodes, and it reveals a little bust of Luke's face. By that point in the movie, we only have, like, the most subtle kind of hints that Darth Vader is Luke's father, but the way, like, that scene sort of plants uh, a couple of weird hints in our minds, and then everything just sort of reveals itself over the rest of the movie. It's very cool and well-executed, I thought. Uh, and it's just such a complete mind f uh, originally. Like, what kind of psychoanalytical weirdness is this? Who would have thought that depth would be in this? Watching the fairly simple version of the movie when you looked at New Hope. It's hard now to, like put myself into this because I watched them out of order and I don't remember ever not seeing these movies. But looking back at it and trying to, you know, put myself into maybe experiencing this contemporarily, like, what would it be like watching New Hope, thinking you know what the rules are of what the movie's going to be trying to do or what level it's going to be telling the stories, and then going to Empire and seeing this dreamy like slow motion scene of this doesn't feel right what's going on this movie's changing the rules on me and you start going through that experience i think that would be very interesting to go like oh i don't know everything that's in this movie and i think that's a great thing in the writing to challenge you on your expectations uh the best dark side moment is apology accepted, Captain Nida. Which is kind of cute. You know, the movie does a great job of making Vader scary in this one. He's torturing people, betraying people, altering deals, um, employing bounty hunters, and I just like the fact that he gets this one cheesy kind of comedy line. Favorite dark side moment? I don't know. I mean... This whole movie is just chock full of good dark side moments. I mean, it's the Empire striking back. But I think one part that's really cool is when Darth Vader summons all the bounty hunters. So we, we just have this whole lineup of scum and villainy. We get to see them up close and personal, and it's awesome. Oh, heck. Oh, also, you know, Slave One is in this. Boba Fett. You know, I didn't even mention him in the characters. Like, there's no character there, but he's just cool. Uh, my favorite minor character? How about Boba Fett? Yeah. Take that, Fett fans. Fett fans. You know, he's just a guy in a cool outfit, and it's it's very interesting how such a short amount of screen time kind of establishes him as this cult character that everybody loves. He has about four lines in the whole film, and one of them is, as you wish. Sometimes showing only a little bit of the character just makes them cooler. It means people can come in and just make up what they want, you know. Until, of course, you establish an elaborate backstory. And change him into a New Zealand man. Uh, my favorite vehicle is Boba Fett's Slave 1. 
It's very, um, it's somewhat iconic, I guess, uh, but it's, it's just because it's very original. Like, the way it moves is un unusual. Uh, the way it kind of flies vertically is unusual. It's just really cool. And then, for my money, among one of the most beautiful, like, places in all Star Wars where I would love to go and live, Cloud City. And this is even before they added all the little CGI touches, which aren't all that bad. It's still such a neat place and such a cool concept of an absolutely enormous city riding in the clouds and what you kind of just mentally picture as a perpetual sunset lighting. It's beautiful. It's just lovely. I really like Bespin, the, the city in the clouds, man, by Lando Calrissian. Uh, what I like about it is it is clean. Um, I talked about last episode that so much of the Star Wars universe is like built on being dirty and gritty and uh, greebly, if I can make a phrase, uh, thanks to a word I learned from Arjuna. Um, but uh, Bespin's not. And why I think that's important is Bespin is clean and smooth lines. Bespin kind of looks like what the prequel trilogy will end up looking like. And then they're almost whimsical cloud city police car dual pod cars those are pretty cool but what i think is cool about it is that it is the the safe version the warm version of clean design whereas in in the original trilogy the only other time we see clean design is like the inside of the bridge of the star destroyer and that's clearly evil like you just look at that set and you're like bad people work here whereas bespin is clean and safe and i think it's really cool that we get just a little bit of a peek of what that looks like what what a safe prosperous version of this galaxy could be all right so my favorite supporting character in this movie is by far lando calrissian uh i think he's one of the most compelling supporting characters in star wars he kind of comes out of nowhere and they really play up like this mysterious angle you know, like clearly has a history with Han and um, but Billy D. Williams just like gives it all his all in this role. And I just um, every scene with him, you know, is just so good. And he starts out really charming that you do not you don't have a clue that he's going to betray everyone. And um, and then you kind of get later on like, oh, like he was clearly coerced into this. Like he's in a bad situation if he tries to cross Vader, you know, at this point, this deal's getting worse all the time. I guess he, he was probably just waiting for the right moment to kind of do something, which I get, you know. He's sort of, it's just his personality. He's like a strategic. He, he's playing the long game. It's amazing that you have all these amazing characters and then just like a ultra smooth Han Solo foil badass that's in there too. And it's like, it's a embarrassment of riches of characters that just become super iconic through this my favorite quote and again forgive me because I'm not always really great at remembering the exact line but it's um, it's actually Lando and it's when they come into the the dinner room or whatever the dining room and Vader's sitting there and they realize that they've been had and Lando has this reproachful look on his face where you can tell he feels awful because he's betrayed his friend and he just says they arrived just before you did I had no choice and to me it's you want to punch him in the face but of course he kind of redeems himself a little bit but uh, it's, it's, it's that, that single moment to me 
as a kid especially filled you with a sense of like oh my god they are so screwed and i really loved it i think when chewbacca is reassembling c-3po after he's been shot to bits inside the cloud city that really did work for me especially where like the part where he's got c-3po's head on and he like slowly rediscovers what's happening and all of that it made me chuckle you know c-3po doesn't really work i think as comic relief in the previous movies but in this scene it works it really does Then you move on to Han Solo. I think he's dialed in a bit more here. He's a bit more refined. He's not like a total sleaze. And you're seeing some awesome heroic character aspects to him more overtly here. But you still get that, the roguish stuff. And his iconic comment of, you know, I love you, I know. At the end, you're seeing him more developed instead of just maybe... I admit, an awesome kind of caricature character, but here you're starting to see him more well-rounded and very much paired with that is Leia. In the first one, I call out that she has some really cool, you know, beats where she is obviously not just the damsel in distress. Here, you're actually seeing her in that meaningful role as a leader of this resistance and commanding. And then when she goes into these different areas, she is still exuding this stress and the uh, uh, strength, rather, in this command of her character. And she's also, let's admit here, also, she's not struggling with a half-assed accent through a lot of the movie. So my favorite dark side moment is uh, where Vader freezes Han and Carbonite in front of Leia. And BT Dubs, that's his daughter. I don't think he realizes it yet. But if he did realize it, that would kind of make a lot of sense because, you know, the whole, like, you know, dad, uh, you know, <laughs> you're dating my daughter, you're going to die kind of thing. <laughs> but, yeah, no, just that moment, there's that shot uh, where Han's getting, you know, he goes down. What, what do you call that thing? Like, he goes down to the carbon freezer, I guess you'd say. There's all that smoke, all that steam that comes up, and you see like Vader's visage coming through the smoke, and it's just horrifying looking. And it's like the music, uh, the Imperial March uh, rises, and, you know, it's just everything about the way that scene is shot is so perfect. And, uh, you know, Chewie's like, you know, he's all, <laughs> it's very emotional, you know? I don't know. Um, on paper, it sounds cheesy as hell, but just the execution is so perfect. The carbonite scene uh, still terrifies me. The fact that they're doing this, they're testing it on Han Solo. They don't know if you can freeze a person in carbonite, so they're testing it on him. That's terrifying. Uh, and it still creeps me out. Like, just the concept of being frozen. Oh, I don't like it at all. But it's good, and you get you get Han and Leia saying "I love you, I know" before he goes in, which is iconic. And then he gets frozen in carbonite, and I'll you know what? That looks good. That looks real good. It's a very cool looking prop. The 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 image of Han in that block of carbonite. I mean, so much that like they make what they make tables out of it. They make uh, paperweights. You can get uh, a crock pot that looks like Han frozen in carbonite. Like they know what they're doing. That is a cool design, and they just slap it on everything. So for the favorite minor character, this is a very minor character who's 
really gained a huge fan base over the past few years. It's Wilro Hood, our ice cream maker buddy. So, in case you missed him, he's that guy in Cloud City who's running for his life, holding what looks like an ice cream maker. And if you've been to, like, Celebration the last couple of years, there's a running of the Wilro Hoods. So, all the people dress up like Wilro Hood and just run down the hallways chanting, Ice cream! Ice cream! Ice cream! And it's a lot of fun. I've even considered maybe doing that if I attend another celebration. So, let's hear it for Wilro Hood, everybody. And then we go down to like little things like I think the creature work here is even better. I mean, it's the cornerstone element of it here is Yoda, of course. This is, in my, you know, in my opinion, genuine acting from a puppet. I know Lucas and all them were frustrated by the limitations of this. And that's why you got some CGI Yoda in the prequels. But I think with like Frank Oz and the people who know what they're doing, it is pretty mind-blowing to me how much emotion they can convey just with a puppet. It's mind-blowing. Favorite quote? Uh, Yoda's message to Luke on Dagobah when Luke's given up on raising the, the X-Wing out of the swamp. And he says, Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. <laughs> Yeah, my Yoda impression sucks. Sorry, guys. Luminous <laughs> beings, are we? Not this crude matter. It's just so poignant and a good reminder that while we are flesh and blood, there's a light within all of us. And it's up to us to let it shine and to see beyond the physical. So Yoda's line, where Luke's going to try and lift the, 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 the X-Wing out of the swamp. And Yoda says, no, because Luke's like, I'll try. And Yoda's like, no, do or do not. There is no try. I mean, okay. I guess we all kind of know what he means by that. But it's like, you know, when I was a kid and saw this, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, how can you do it if you don't try to do it first, Yoda? But then... I was just watching Star Wars Rebels the other day, and in an early episode, Kanan, the Jedi, is talking to uh, to the kid that he's training, and he says that line, do or do not, there is no try, and the kid says the same thing. He's like, what are you talking about? How can I do it if I don't try? And I was like, yeah, right, kid? And then at the end of the episode, Kanan's like, listen, I will train you. I'm not going to say I'm going to try to train you, because if I say I'm going to try to train you, it means I think I might fail. And I'm not going to fail at this. And it's like, aw, it was a really touching explanation of that. And I feel like that was somebody working on Star Wars Rebels years later who's like, all right, listen, this is a show for kids. And one thing I never understood when I was a kid is what Yoda meant by do or do not, there is no try. So I'm just going to weave that back in here with a little bit of an explanation for the kids. One musical cue that really resonates with me is Yoda's theme. I think it's called that. I didn't actually go and look. But it's just, it's very, it's a very uplifting melody, literally and figuratively. I like the use of that with 
Luke's training and using the force and everything like that. Uh, the best light side moment is Yoda lifting the X-Wing out of the swamp. It's a beautiful moment which demonstrates that Yoda's powers, you know, aren't just that he can fly about with a lightsaber and throw it and catch it and stuff like that. He's beyond things like that. He's got this tremendous inner strength which you know, is not belayed by the, his small stature. His connection to the Force means that he is capable of much more significant things. And that's just a really cool moment. I always just loved the X-Wings. And this movie, the X-Wing, gets a lot of showtime. And it almost gets sunk in the swamps of Dagobah, but thankfully Yoda saves it. It's always It's just a neat little vehicle, and I love how... R2's piloting it, and I would love to have an R2 pilot. <laughs> you have Luke Skywalker, and I think his character is cleaned up a bit here. And I think that aids to the enjoyment of the movie. You kind of look at him in that first one as maybe like a little bit of a whiny kid. And you get that a bit here when he goes through the Yoda training, but I think they clean up a lot of those rough edges. He's a little bit more war-torn, war-experienced. And I think it helps you kind of enjoy and jump on with him. There's less of that, you know, there's less of that, I got to get power converters things. And, but when he does do that, when he's with Yoda, it's like you can kind of see the motivation of it there because you're seeing the frustration of not just like teenage angst. He wants to get into the fight. He wants to support his friends. He wants to do something that you can see what he's struggling with so i think there's a lot better of a buy-in with him there and the character work with that my favorite light side moment when i was a kid it was probably when luke says screw the training that i desperately need to have a chance i have to go save my friends because that to me is like he knows he doesn't stand a chance he knows it but he does it anyway because it's the, the he knows it's the right thing to do and that's why luke is always my favorite han's the coolest yes but Han's the Raphael, the Wolverine. Like, everyone likes Han. Like, you know, he's cool, and that's, like, the lazy man's answer. But Luke is nuanced, even though, yeah, he's a whiny little bitch at times. And he kissed his sister on multiple occasions. So, yes, there are some things to nitpick about Lucas. Also, he doesn't seem to really care that his only family he's ever known was horrifically murdered in the first movie. Doesn't really care. Um, so, that was my favorite moment was originally when Luke decided to eschew the training and go save his friends in Cloud City when he knew they were in trouble. And then you get... The multi-staged great lightsaber battle throughout Cloud City. And I think that's one of the things that you see reproduced, you know, amped up on steroids in the prequels and the subsequent movies. But this is that beginning of having great character work throughout all of this, but moving and keeping it dynamic through multiple different stages of the fight, ultimately you know, resulting in the patented Star Wars deep pitfall end of it. But I just love that throughout it, it's not boring. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's obviously of a different type of battle that might be seen as boring to kids now. But I thought that was always thrilling and just the different aspects of it, of invoking the Force and Luke always being obviously in over his head at this point. I wouldn't necessarily say the Luke-Vader fight is a light side moment, although Luke's refusal to give in, even though certain death is in his face, is another reason why he's my favorite. 
Here it is, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader in a pretty legit lightsaber battle. Uh, it's still nothing like what we get in the prequel trilogies with, you know, the flipping and the, the agility. This is like broadswords, but it's good looking. And a lot of that comes down to the cinematography. There's a frequent shots in this where it's like black silhouettes with the lightsabers. I mean, we can all see it right now, right? Like you can see Luke Skywalker standing silhouetted with his hands on his hips with Darth Vader in front of him. Ah, oh, it's so good. Like that's, you know, there's the meme of people saying like, my teacher says you can't hear pictures. I can hear that picture and I'm not even looking at it. So I can hear the picture in my head of what it sounds like when they're standing there and then the lightsabers turn on. Ah, it's so good. And this whole fight scene is great. They're going all through Bespin, all through kind of the guts of the city. And then of course we end up uh, with Luke kind of out on this on this uh, like pier thing sticking up over a great cavern that uh, surely no one would survive if they fell down. And then, and then Darth Vader's like, hey man, you should join my side. And Luke's like, no, I'll never join you. And he goes, but did Obi-Wan ever tell you what happened to your father? I should be doing this in Darth Vader voice. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. Now, I think I'm right in saying that this is the first film with the Imperial March and Han and Leia's love theme. Uh, both are great, but I'm going to go with the just little snatch of the Imperial March that we hear when Vader tells Luke that he's his father. And also, let's not forget that this is where John Williams introduced the iconic score and pieces which we all know and love today, which is we hear the Imperial March for the first time, the asteroid field, Yoda's theme, and of course, the beautiful Han and Leia's love theme. It doesn't get any better than the Imperial March. I mean, hands down. <laughs> Enough said. When you go back and look at New Hope, the music there is just stellar. And people forget that maybe one of the more iconic, short of the original Star Wars fanfare, one of the most iconic pieces of music wasn't in that. It's in this. And that's the Imperial March. I think that's up there with some of the most iconic music ever. A really powerful, slow, ominous moment that I think really is the thing that helps make that moment iconic. If you listen to it, do not kind of see Darth Vader like purposely walking towards you to mess you up. That's basically what I picture every time I listen to it. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. So after holding his own against Vader, Luke decides he'd rather die than join him. And it's after he gets his hand cut off, he really is, like, in this completely hopeless situation. He's, like, not sure if Vader's lying to him about being his father. He, you know, he's up against a wall, basically. No! That's not true! That's impossible! And uh, Vader has this really awesome speech about like join me and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son and it's really powerful and it's been quoted a thousand times but you know everyone focuses on the fact that luke's like no and being all whiny and shit but like it's i feel like it tuning i mean the acting maybe could have been better but i think it's pretty authentic like i, I really feel like how would you react in that scene you know like jesus <laughs> Dude got his hand cut off. You know, it's it's kind of surprising he's holding it together as well as he is. 
but just the fact that he sees his one way out and it's falling to his death and he takes it he just falls back he just lets gravity do the rest fortunately as luke falls he gets sucked into some weird vacuum tube i don't know if he got sucked into that or did he use the force to like throw himself into that tube i'm not sure and i think he's a little surprised that he survives it he's like oh shit (laughs) and he's like kind of holding on you know at the end there and uh you know luckily you know his friends show up in the nick of time uh but yeah that that scene is so powerful to me the only thing I had a real issue with was I think the Blu-ray release where they added in this scream when Luke falls and it totally defeats the point of that scene. But it leads to the bottom of Bespin. He falls out the bottom, gets stuck on some weird TV aerial that they've got sticking off the bottom of the thing. And then he uses the force to call out to Leia because people can use the force to talk to other people across great distances. It's canon. Deal with it. I think my favorite light side moment is when Luke and Leia have that connection and she says, we have to go back. I think Leia's force abilities get underappreciated. A lot of people just assume she doesn't have any, but this is a good example showing that she does. And of course, we see it displayed a little in further movies, but we'll talk about that later. And then there's this really cool sequence towards the end they added where it shows Vader going to a shuttle. It's not really, the scene doesn't serve a lot of purpose unless you're like, wait, how did Vader get from Cloud City to his Star Destroyer? Like, no one cares. But it was kind of a cool sequence just the way they shot it and the fact that they they shot it 20 years later and they added it back in and it was seamless. So I thought that was cool. Of course, the Millennium Falcon comes back with Lando Calrissian at the helm because he turned on on Darth Vader, and now he's helping the good guys escape. Uh, Boba Fett's got Han Solo and Carbonite. Luke gets picked up by Lando, but they're being pursued. Oh, no, they're going to get him. You know, I could point to any number of scenes involving R2-D2, just like in all the other previous movies, Um, especially the one towards the end where... Just as the Millennium Falcon is uh, failing to escape the Super Star Destroyer because they can't turn on the hyperdrive, and R2-D2, you know, changes something in the circuitry and turns it on at the last minute and saves the day. Again, he is the true protagonist of these movies. Here's the thing. Here's perhaps my favorite thing about Empire Strikes Back. My favorite thing about Empire Strikes Back is that Darth Vader has a personality. And it's, it's weird, because he's got a mask on, but you see his personality through the mask. So early on in the movie, of course, he murders one of his one of his uh, captains because uh, they jumped out of hyperspace too soon, and he just kills the guy. And then later on, the person that got promoted because that guy died gets killed because he screwed up too. So first of all, you just see Darth Vader murdering people all over the place, which is not a great personality trait, but I think it is a personality trait that he just like, he's like, I, I, have, I have serious issues. <sighs> Dealing with failure. At the end, when the Millennium Falcon makes the jump to hyperspace at the last minute, and Darth Vader looks over at the Admiral on deck with him, uh, the Super Star Destroyer. And this is like the third Admiral we've seen on the ship, because Darth Vader strangled the first two. And so, he's looking over at him. The Admiral looks like he's got five seconds to live. And then, 
Vader just walks away. He's like, Nope, I'm too mad to strangle you. Besides, I've almost used up my allowance of disposable admirals. As far as I'm concerned, yours is the Empire's ass. But that's not the personality that I love. The personality that I love comes up twice. The first time it comes up is when Luke's arm gets chopped off and he falls down. And Luke just kind of looks over at the railing. Or, I'm sorry, Anakin in the in the Darth Vader costume looks over the railing. And and he doesn't say anything. But just the way that he leans forward and looks down, you, you, can, you can hear him going inside that helmet, just muttering to himself, going, oh, dang it. Like, you can just see that he's like, oh, man, I had I really thought that my son was going to join me, and together we were going to rule this galaxy as father and son, but then I cut his arm off and he fell down a perilous pit. The second time you see that great Anakin disappointment face through his helmet is when the Millennium Falcon manages to jump to light speed, even though its light speed was supposed to be taken offline, uh, and he's on the bridge of the Star Destroyer, and he's just standing there, and it's taken off. And he kind of starts to turn away. And then he turns and looks back at the empty starfield in front of him, where the, the Millennium Falcon was and now no longer is. And it's just that double take. You can, again, you can just see it, it behind the helmet. You can see this, like, this sucks. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I love it. And I, what I love on top of that is that uh, everybody, all the people on the ship are, like, watching him as he walks by, like, ooh, is Darth Vader going to murder me? I sure hope not. Uh, and he doesn't. No murder that time. Darth Vader in this. I think his character is also super improved because it's no longer just, admittedly, he's an awesome just presence and obviously of, you know, the bad guy. But they do a ton of great work here to make his character better, more interesting, giving him a little bit more motivation than just, hey, I'm the guy dressed all in black and I wear a scary mask, therefore I have to be bad. That is cool, but why don't we want to do a little bit more than that too if we can? And they obviously do. Um, as far as dark side moments, it's a bit of a cheat to say the end, um, but I, I'll say we'll say Vader's triumph all the way from Cloud City where the trap is set to where Han is captured. He's frozen in carbonite, and he's given to Boba Fett to be shipped off to Jabba, which we know from, you know, context in the first movie is very much a bad thing for him. Um, you know, Leia's captured, presumably, and everything sucks. Uh, Luke gets his hand cut off, finds out the bad guy's his dad, almost died. I mean, everything about it is bad. The rebellion is essentially crushed. It looks like everything is, is done. And it's, as a kid especially, I, I mean, you didn't see that. The closest thing to that I had ever seen was, like, the Bad News Bears because they lost the baseball game. It's not exactly the same thing. Uh, obviously, that really stuck with everybody. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the one person calling this moment out, but that's my favorite. And then we set up for the sequel, right? Because you get, uh, you get Luke gets a new hand. Uh, he had a robot hand, now he gets a new hand, which is weird because it feels like a callback to the prequels, except for they didn't exist yet because there's no reason Luke needs a robot hand in Empire, like narratively, he gets his hand cut off and immediately gets a replacement hand that looks perfect. So there's no narrative purpose to it in this movie, but it connects to the prequels, which didn't exist yet. So that's kind of cool. Uh, and now they've got to go find Han. Like they're all set up for what their next mission is going to be. And they say, all right, I'll meet you at the rendezvous point on Tatooine. So they like, they set up so well what's going to happen next. But that's what makes Empire feel so good, I think, is it's not just 
to, to quote Kevin Smith, a series of down endings, but it's like, it almost feels unfinished. Like this is clearly a part of a bigger story. Real quick, so with the first movie, it's kind of amazing that movie even worked. Like, there were so many things behind the scenes that went wrong, and it just kind of magically all came together at the end in the editing. Part of that was John Williams' score. Part of that was, uh, what's her name? George Lucas's wife, who a lot of people don't realize actually kind of saved that movie in the editing. There was so much that they left on the cutting room floor for the better. Like, that movie would have been awful in its original version. And it's really clever what they did with the editing. Um, but yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. Now, that movie was an unexpected hit, obviously. I mean, you know, it was like one of the original blockbusters, I want to say. And it made all the money. So when it came to the second one, they actually invested in it. They, they got, you know, like a really awesome screenwriter. Um, who directed this one? Kasdan? Erwin Kirshner, right? So Kirshner directed it. Um, not George Lucas, by the way. This is probably the movie that Lucas had the least to do with, and it turns out it's probably the best one in the entire series. I think here, George Lucas is best served in some of the high-level creative aspects. I don't think it does anybody any favors when he is left to do a lot of the heavy lifting in the writing area. Here, he was asked to do the you know, broad sweeps of the story and the special effects. And that's obviously what he loves doing, and it shows. And that's great. Perfect. But we brought in another writer and another director. And boy, oh boy, I think it really shows for it. We also get these unforgettable quotes. I love you, I know. Do or do not, there is no try. It's a trap for the first time hearing it from Leia, not Akbar. And of course, no, I am your father. I mean, probably the most quoted Star Wars film ever is Empire. Um, there are iconic moments throughout. Every department is at the top of its game. The cast all brilliant. And it's also just much better directed than Star Wars. Yeah, this, this movie really elevated the genre. Sci-fi was not taken seriously until this movie came out. So to me, Empire is the absolute perfect Star Wars film. Love the entire franchise, but Empire always stood out to me. I mean, really, at the end of the day, Empire, like I said, is pretty much a perfect movie. I could pick 15 examples of each one of these things, but I think I'll stick with those and uh, just really hope that somewhere down the line they can live up to this movie and do another one like it. This this movie really took the series in an unexpected direction. Um, I, I don't want to say it was the first movie to really do this but it might have been where the second movie in the trilogy was kind of ended on a on a low note you know like the vader reveal it did not have a happy ending it was the exact opposite of the first movie you know the first one when i watch a new hope i immediately want to watch the next movie but that's just because i like them a lot whereas this one it's like i want to watch the next movie because i need to know what happens next like the story's not done you didn't put all your toys back in the box so I want to go watch the next one so I can find out what happens. And that's what I'm going to go do. Because Empire Strikes Back is great, but the original trilogy as a whole is fantastic. And I don't get that until I stop this recording and go watch Return of the Jedi.
Podcasters Assemble, probably, Season 2, The Rise of Podcast, is a production of the We Can Make This Work, Probably, Podcast Network. This episode, edited and produced by Troidal Power. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assembled Probably by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links to places where you can find them all online. Podcasters Assemble Probably will return in Star Wars Episode 6, Return of the Jedi. Besides, if I strangle another admiral, the Emperor will cut off my fortnight access for a week.